Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast as we continue the conversation on the subject of fossil fuels decarbonization and impacts on uh, people and economies. My guest today is Peter Bryant. Peter is the co-founder and board chair of an Australian-based entity called Development Partner Institute. DPI is a mining advocacy initiative and much of its work is in Africa. Peter is a thought leader on sustainability and energy. Peter is widely published, speaks at conferences around the world. He also serves on boards of advisors and various emerging tech companies, including Lilac Solutions and Save All. Peter, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's very nice to speak with you today. Uh, thanks, Sheila. And uh, it's a real honor to be uh, your guest today. And uh, hopefully we'll have a great conversation for your listeners today. I'm sure that we will. So let's get straight to it. So I know that you're very passionate about this uh, notion of social justice. Mm -hmm. Just to get started, could you define that concept for us, please? Yeah, thanks, Sheila. Yeah, and there's a lot. I, I actually checked online and there's a lot of definitions of it, but I like the simple one, which is really how we distribute wealth, opportunity and privilege. And I will add, and the burdens uh, of whatever actions that we take in society and that everybody should have opportunity and access to that. Hmm. So if we translate that then, that, that concept of uh, balancing of opportunity and burden and making sure it's cross-cutting, if yes. we transfer that then to the notion of decarbonizing the environment and climate change initiatives, how do you see that playing? Yeah, I, I think this is a very complex area, Sheila, and one that is actually largely ignored in the current discourse and narrative that's occurring around the world. Let me just step back. So I'm a great believer in what I call the just transition to a cleaner energy future. Um, and I think of it in four pillars or four challenges. So one challenge is uh, social equity, social equality. Second one is how we reduce emissions. Third one is the material supply chain, which is largely mining and very uh, important to Africa, of course. And lastly is China's love affair with coal. And I think if we are to have a just transition, we need to address each of these four areas equally. Uh, and right now I worry that actually we're just addressing one and ignoring the other three. So, so when you think of uh, the, the one that you think we are addressing, which one is it? Uh, yes, Sheila, we're addressing emissions. And I think that, you know, uh, and it's government, activists, everyone is just so focused around emissions uh, and are in such a hurry to get things done that we actually ignore, uh, to the detriment of a lot of people, I must say, uh, the other issues. And, you know, again, this topic today is around, you know, social equity and social justice. And I think there's a lot, and we'll talk about this, a lot of unattended consequences that we're already starting to see play out if we pursue um, climate change in the manner that we are. You know, many people will uh, think of you as dragging your feet uh, because uh, as you rightly say, uh, the train has left the station now and everybody's focused mm. on emissions. Maybe you can just say for us succinctly, uh, if we were to address these four pillars uh, as you see them, mm -hmm. uh, what would be the pegging order for you then? Well, I think, again, I'll just step back, Sheila, as I think, you know, I will pick on the um, social justice because it is uh, connected. So, and we need to act on all four simultaneously. And I'll talk about this in the context of the just transition. 
But firstly, you know, we're acting in the uh, situation where, particularly in the developing world, we have a 1 billion of the 7 billion people on this planet that have no electricity. We have a billion people that have, um, you know, inefficient, irregular access to electricity in the developing world. And much of that is in Africa. Uh, and that is both a moral, social, and economic, um, you know, I think catastrophe almost. Uh, and then plus in the developed world, and particularly in the United States, we have the consequences. And I, I'll use, I live in California, and I'll use this as an example. You know, everybody uses California for the developed world as kind of a poster child. You know, I've, I've done the analysis. You know, this is the state with the highest homelessness rate, the highest poverty rate in the country, and uh, the highest energy costs by far that costs probably somewhere between two to $3,000 extra for an average family. Um, and when you're earning 30,000, that is not social equity. So, so I think we, as policymakers are thinking about it, we have this, you know, almost, a, it is a human right, the SDG, one of the SDGs is that people have access to electricity. We know energy is what drives prosperity. So there's about 2 billion people on this planet that really don't have a fundament, fundamental access to something that drives prosperity. And then in the developed world, a lot of the consequences of policy is causing, pushing people into you know, poorer situations. So, and I just don't think this is in the discourse. It's not talked about. Um, and I, frankly, I don't know. And then with the other pillars, obviously, you know, we need to understand how we're moving from an, a fuel intensive energy system to a materials one and the impacts there. And again, this has huge consequences for Africa, given the mining footprint. And really, whatever the West does kind of gets to naught if we don't deal with China's, um, I call it a love affair with coal because they're building coal stations in China and, and funding them overseas at a, uh, at a very rapid rate. So, hmm. so let, let's uh, sort of stay with the, the basics for, for now. Now, the notion of justice, of course, suggests somehow that there are elements of injustice. So when you say just transition, you, uh, you, by implication, you recognize elements of mm. injustice in the current dispensation. Yes. What, in your view, constitutes these elements of injustice in more precise terms? Um, I think it's actually the injustice is that, again, and this is you know, the fault of a combination of governments, activists, companies, is that in the rush to act, and to your point, Sheila, it's like people would accuse me of dragging my feet, uh, is that they don't take the time to sit there and understand the context for each key stakeholder, whether it be you know, communities, indigenous people, et cetera. They just don't take the time. They say, this is so urgent. This is so important. And what that does is it creates burden. So you end up, one of the key tenets of a just transition is if you don't embrace this as a matter of a policy almost, is you end up with the burdens of whatever happens uh, going to the people that can least afford to carry the burdens and the benefits and opportunities going to uh, just a few people or organizations. And that fundamentally is unjust. And it's just this lack of understanding. And I've, I've sat in sessions where people have told me we, because of the urgency of climate change, we don't have time to do this. And my retort to them is if we don't, not only will there be all this inequity created, but in fact, it, we won't achieve the transition that we seek because people will push back. People, if they're not, if people aren't included in the discussion, uh, then they will push back when people try and force things upon them. And we're seeing that play out all around the world. So, hmm. uh, so 
you you have in a way mapped where you think the victims of this lack of justice uh, are to be found, which is basically in Africa and even in the developed world in the lower levels of the social strata. Yes. Uh, I mean, it it may seem self-evident, but who are the perpetrators of this injustice? Okay. So I wouldn't use the word perpetrators, but yeah, it's a strong, powerful word. Sometimes we have to use powerful words, Sheila, don't we? Um, I think it's actually the system. We do, yeah. I think it's the system, actually, Sheila. I think the system of government, the system of how we get things to happen is becoming more and more concentrated to what I call the smart people. The smart people don't have time to confer with all the stakeholders. We don't have time. And we see this play out all the time. So I I do believe, you know, I don't think there's evil, you know, perpetrator also suggests people are intently acting with intent to harm people, which I don't think is the case. I think people are acting with good intent, but they just simply don't want to spend the time to understand the consequences of their action or what other people actually may desire. Um, Because it's not... Yeah, because a lot of this is a Western, you know, kind of not, the solutions are being Western driven largely. And we don't take the time to understand, well, when we think about energy, what what are the needs of other people, of other communities, other countries? So, hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you, you do well to, uh, you know, s- set me on the right course by not suggesting that there is a deliberate effort to victimize uh, and, and, and that in effect is an outcome of a system that just isn't working correctly to galvanize debate and take cognizance of yeah. impacts, but also uh, views of other people that having assumed that they have moral authority, uh, they then mm. take their moral uh, high ground for granted. Is that basically what you say? It is. Let me give you two examples to kind of reinforce that. So I, I was very fortunate that I was I facilitated a panel discussion with actually the president of Shell US and the OPEC then OPEC representative for Ecuador. And he was describing how in Ecuador, A, they have a very aggressive goal for net zero emissions for Ecuador, but at the same time, they are developing their oil and gas assets. Okay. And he was asked, well, they that seems at odds with each, with each other. And he said, no, because whilst we see we need to get to zero emissions, our number one priority, and yes, climate change is important, but our number one priority is the prosperity of our people. And the only path to help grow that prosperity is to develop the resources that we have, oil and gas. Okay. And I've heard this time and time again in, in, in New Zealand when I was at the Just Transition Summit that uh, the Prime Minister held, and I was a speaker there. I was then joined a panel with some Maori leaders and a woman who's the CEO of a Maori enterprise and said, yeah, climate change is important. And as in the indigenous people of New Zealand, you know, we are very connected to the environment and it's important. But whatever we do to address climate change must not negatively impact the progress we're making on health outcomes, education outcomes, and other key social outcomes for the Maori people, because we're still behind the white people. So these are perspectives that I think are important. Um, and, you know, and I think sometimes we dismiss those as, you know, fringe elements or criticize a country for developing its resources because it wants to drive prosperity for its people. So those people do not see it to be a dichotomy at all. Yet we do. Mm. Yeah. You, you spoke about 
the system been where the problem lies. And I'm trying to get to grips with what constitutes the system. Are you talking about government uh, and international organizations where governments come together and consult? Or are you talking about fundamentally the way the world is constructed today and how governments, civil society, corporations, and, and others interface? What constitutes the system that is flawed? Yeah. I think it's a combination of all of the above, but I actually would probably lean towards the latter part, which is just how government, corporations, civil society, communities interact with each other. And that then kind of um, expresses itself in how policy is constructed, etc. So <clears throat> I don't think that there is any value anymore, play, or there's less value placed on we need to bring all the key stakeholders together. We need to understand what their needs are and we need to co-create together. This is a key tenant of the just transition. We need to co-create together what the pathway looks forward to get to this cleaner energy future. And the key thing here, Sheila, is it's not a binary thing. There's trade-offs to be had here, you know, because there's a, you know, every human activity has a negative consequence. It really does. And there needs to be, all the stakeholders need to be in a room to understand the trade-offs that each stakeholder group must make if we're to achieve what we are. Because if we don't, and it's, so whether it's the, the, the system, governments, nobody really encourages that. And to, and to the extent that you know people believe in the just transition, there's only two countries that have adopted it as a matter of policy, both small countries, my home country of New Zealand uh, and Iceland, interestingly. So, um, I, th I think it's just too, it's too, this is too important to ignore. <laughs> True. So, so um, you made a point about reconstructing um, and the unsustainable nature of first how we exist and live today, but also the unsustainable nature of the solution we are trying to construct. Mm -hmm. So um, when you then think about uh, bringing uh, just transition to the table. Uh, what do you think would be the starting point? Do you see this going back to ground zero and consulting as the ideal starting point? I, I really do, Sheila. And I will be criticised, I'm sure, roundly, and I have been, that because that will slow progress. And I, I actually push back, and it is, you need to bring everybody together and understand uh, each perspective to come up with what does that, you know, and eventually you co-create a roadmap. And whilst that may take effort and time and kind of, you know, quite a bit of heft um, up front, I think it will result in a quicker uh, transition because what it will avoid is some of the things we're seeing playing out. And an example is here in the US, the largest solar array, uh, 850 megawatts, is being built in the Mojave Desert. Right now, the same environmental organizations that want to shift to solar power are actively against this because of an endangered desert turtle. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but these are kind of things that we need to debate up front because now what that's going through is a whole cycle of resistance, right, which will slow it down and maybe never get approved. So I'm thinking if you can't build a solar array in the Mojave Desert, where can you build it in the U.S.? So these things need to be understood. Otherwise, we we think we're jumping at we're, we're we're acting like sprinters when we're really running a marathon, and that's a problem. 
So, um, mm. and I think these are the unattended consequences, and then communities will start pushing back as well. So, mm. yeah. So, so really, what you're saying is that we know how, what we want to achieve. What we haven't done is check whether the roadmap works, uh, yes. and and we we risk uh, charging at galloping speed only to have to stop and retrace our steps, at which point it may be too late because we might have done even more damage or lost the opportunity to reverse uh, uh, the process. To be fair, uh, Peter, my, I sort of uh, agree with you too, because I think the feeling of most people is that, uh, you know, we know the answer, it's all about emissions. If we mm. just contain emissions, we will be okay. Uh, but also, uh, many of the people I speak to ill-advisedly presume that the driver of uh, this problem is the extractives and oil and gas and mineral yeah. footprint. Little mm. looking at agriculture and the way we live, where really uh, some of the scientists I've spoken to say agriculture by far uh, between the combination of water, ground pollution, chemicals, and whatever, uh, has potentially a much bigger uh, carbon footprint. And yet nobody's talking about that, which is focusing on decarbonizing the uh, energy sector, not realizing that's more. So, so I do think uh, that a level of retracing our steps and making sure we can pull this off is critical. I, I do feel the pain of uh, resource, uh, if you wish, hydrocarbon resource uh, countries too. People should have taken stock of the impact of this and said, okay, if we do this, what is the impact on country by country? The notion that you can just come with the NDCs and say, you decide, that seems to me such an unstarter. And so uh, I'm glad to hear somebody saying it may be difficult, it may be daunting, but it's well worth uh, uh, thinking about. But I mean, if you think about it, I mean, who, what, what's stopping? Where, where, when you talk to people, is it uh, that people are, are afraid? Or is it that they just think, look, we've had enough naysayers, uh, we are moving on? Or, or what is it? Is, is, are there vested interests? What is it? Well, I think the first thing is, actually, I think it's a number of things. You know, first is it's mindset. Um, and I, I, I listened to an interview, interestingly, from the... Uh, woman who was the uh who's now the head of the world trade organization who is the finance minister for nigeria wonderful interview, wonderful woman one, yeah and one of the things that she said uh yeah because she worked at the world bank as well yeah um, yes she did yeah and she and this is what i believe is that she said one of the problems that has happened with the wto is everything that it does has become technocrat focused versus being human-centric. And that's what she wants to do is bring humans back to the center of what the WTO does. And I think this is one of the obstacles here is that everything we do, everything, how we speak and everything, it's all very technocratic, you know? Uh, and we've lost the point about humanity and that I think we need to bring it back. And a just transition does bring it back to being a much more human-centric approach where technology, et cetera, has its uh, part. I think the other one is it's actually dishonest to say that climate change is a existential threat to the human race. Um, I've listened to lots of scientists to say that are practical, you know, particularly in New Zealand. I mean, climate change is serious, but the human race is not, to go, is not about to go extinct. So um, we do have the time to sit back and take stock of all this. We really do. So I think it's a combination of mindset, this kind of technocrat approach, 
Um, and unfortunately, I think it's um, an unwillingness to listen. So, mm. which is, I think, you know, kind of a, unfortunately, a common trait that's spreading around the world, right, is people with, diff- it's getting harder and harder to get people together in a room to have an honest discussion where you have differing points of view. Mm-hmm. So I have I have two other uh, uh, thoughts on what is stopping us from yeah. uh, taking a pause, and and I want to test this with you. Okay. The first is that, of course, uh, in today's world where everybody is, is potentially a journalist. I mean, here I am in Africa speaking with you in uh, LA. Uh, nobody has ever heard of me, but here I am. People are willing to tune in and listen to what I have to say. Nobody asks about my credibility. Uh, but even if I, I, I had it or don't have it, uh, nobody asks about the credibility of anything. But mm. what I do have is a voice, because thanks to social media. Mm. Do you not think that this capacity to speak, whether or not you have knowledge, is problematic for those with knowledge? Because mm. it doesn't, just that you are the knowledge of one in the room doesn't always mean you are, you are the one whose voice is loudest. Yes. Have we taken away the ability of those with knowledge to step back, digest knowledge and act without being rushed into it by uh, public opinion? So great point, Sheila. And I, I, think, I think you are right. I think there's a combination of things going on there. Is, yeah, people, is what is knowledge? And what makes knowledge valuable information? And I think we have a very myopic view. And you know, we've talked about this at DPI is you know, indigenous people have enormous knowledge around the environment, right? But because it's not documented and anchored in science, I call it kind of evidence-based because it's you know, 10, 20, 30 generations of observation uh, that they mm-hmm. bring to the table. The Western technocrat way discounts that knowledge and doesn't absorb that knowledge. Um, and I think that's just one example of what you're talking about is there's a voice and the people with the knowledge don't take the time to sit back and absorb that. And it may change what they know. Um, so I, I think that's important. And you you often talk about the concept of truth to power as well. Um, and I think that's a big issue in this discourse that's going on as well is I think a lot of people um, you know, that want to speak their truth, um, you know, find it very difficult to and not listen to because of this whole concept of, you know, speaking truth to power. Hmm. Here's another thing that I think is problematic, and, and that is aligned to what you said, which is just the way we, we live uh, in today's world. We are very enterprising, and entrepreneurship can sometimes get ahead of a good idea. Yes. And once uh, certain ideas uh, land on the human entrepreneurial spirit, that's it. Uh, it it's up to the young techs what they make of it. And I, I, I think the solution to climate change has also been a victim, if you wish, of this entrepreneurial spirit where people have seen. And so the moment that uh, horse bolts is very difficult, isn't it, to pull it back because then you have vested interest in yes. uh, the conversation going one direction and not the other. And I think that will be one of the most difficult things. Uh, to deal with if we want to push to go back to ground zero. Uh, do you think uh, I'm making sense? You are making sense, yeah. And I think people are fixated on, um, you know, the IEA, I think, speaks correctly that 
for us to get to where we are, it has to be all of the above. You know, we have to do nuclear. We have to figure out carbon capture. You know, at the same time, we have to provide pathways for energy for the billion people that don't have it. Not, you know, and the problem is solar and wind won't do it, you know, uh, in many cases in Africa because we have large cities. And so that, that leads us to natural gas. Um, and a lot of activists and, and governments following are, shut, are trying to shut down natural gas, right? So I read, for example, that the U.S. Treasury, which I'm appalled at, by the way, if this, if this is true, that the U.S. Treasury is pressuring multilateral development banks, which they have enormous sway over, to no longer fund natural gas projects, your power stations. I'm appalled. Because that would stymie development of your cleaner energy resources for a lot of African locations, potentially. Um, and I, I just think that's so wrongheaded. It's immoral almost, because who are we to, because we, we're saying that, but we're not providing alternatives right now. You cannot provide utility scale alternatives to natural gas in Africa. I mean, it's just in many African locations. You know, distributed energy, solar and wind works in some places, but not in everything, particularly in urban. So. Um, that's you know, so I'm kind of agreeing with you. So yeah, I mean, I think people, have, in other words, people have got these fixated views, right? That these are the only things that will work, um, and therefore we need to shut everything else down. And I, we're probably heading for a bit of a train wreck if we do this. Yeah, that that would be. I mean, the World Bank uh, and the African Development Bank, for that matter, uh, both uh, do not uh, fund investment in oil projects. Well, uh, I think for a while, gas was seen as uh, the uh, environmentally acceptable alternative. But uh, since January uh, and the debates in Europe, uh, that seems to have also stopped. And so my guess is uh, those advocates are pressuring their governments who are now voting uh, with their dollar on these institutions. And to your point about uh, some people being left behind, mm. uh, many of the poor countries are beholden to these institutions for all sorts of things. And so if they say jump, generally they jump very high. And, and, and so it, it is expedient. Mm. Uh, it it uh, borders on uh, bullying. And uh, it is on some level, to your point, not uh, transitioning in a, in a just uh, manner. So here's mm. my last question to you oh. then, uh, based on that you and I are gonna sort out the world's problems. Yeah, we are. Together, Sheila, yes. <laughs> so uh, to the extent that we are unsuccessful in executing in the way that you perceive, what do you think are the uh, unintended consequences or, or the long-term impacts of uh, not starting on the right foot? I think what will happen is we won't get to the destination that we seek in the time frame that we need to. So I... So several things will happen. One is the pushback against a lot of these projects that are necessary, if you like, to reduce emissions will be just so intense, it'll just slow everything down. So that's one, because people won't adopt or approve of or embrace many of the things because they weren't part of the discussion in the first place. Um, so, and I think in this world of social media, and there's a lot more power given to community. So I think that's one. So I think the big, you know, 20 years of really going, oh my God, Two is that, you know, the people with the resources and knowledge, so I'm continually surprised how often oil and gas companies are not, are not brought to the table because they're seen as the evil empire. Yet these are companies with vast resources that I think are genuinely 
genuine about their uh, goal to transition to energy, you know, to be diversified energy companies and move away from boiling, pure oil and gas. Um, so I just think this, it just creates kind of, a, puts too much friction in it. So I don't think we'll get to where we want to and we will exasperate, exasperate social inequality because we'll have all these wrong-headed policies um, and people in the developed world that, you know, the lower socioeconomic will carry greater and greater burdens. Um, and then in the developed world, you know, we will, you know, we're going to have an extra 2 billion people, I think, in the next 30 years, a lot of that in Africa. You know, we'll still be thinking in 30 years, Sheila, we've still got a couple of billion people without electricity. I mean, that's just criminal in this day and age. Um, and therefore, we're preventing their children, those people having education, healthcare, because electricity is fundamental. So um, so I, I don't want to be too gloomy. And I, one thing I will say, though, Sheila, is also I, I think we forget to congratulate ourselves because if you look at companies, people, have, a lot of people through market forces have done great, have made great strides forward in reducing emissions and cleaning up the environment. I mean, the environment is a lot better than it was 25 years ago in many countries. Even, I mean, I'm, I'm looking out at the LA skyline and I can see it. When I first came here traveling in the mid 80s, you couldn't see it because of the smog. You know, and the population is probably double what it was back in the mid 80s. So I think, you know, so I think sometimes we forget we've actually made a lot of good progress. But to get to the goals that we need to, I think it requires a fundamental change in the approach that we're taking. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for those words of wisdom. It was lovely speaking with you. Uh, and thank you for your time on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast, Peter. Sheila, thank you very much.